Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Brenda Russell, and there is definitely a buzz happening. Brandon's Buzz. Hey, this is Nicholas Rodriguez. You are listening to Brandon's Buzz. Be prepared to laugh. You're going to have a good time. Hi, I'm Alita Adams. Everybody is all a buzz about Brandon's Buzz. This guy is the person to listen to. <laughs> I wish you could do all the interviews. <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it, baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Connie Pasolacla-Hayman, otherwise known as Marlena Delacroix. I have a great time with Brandon. I always do. He's a fantastic interviewer, and I'm saying that because I'm a journalism professor, and he's a pro. This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. guys and welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It's Tuesday, October 27th, 2009, 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas and I'm thrilled to have you back with us here at Brandon's Buzz. You know we have a great guest today and I'm not going to waste any time. You know there's no need to mince words on my extraordinary guest tonight. She is one of the greatest singers drawing breath on the whole damned planet. Widely regarded as this generation's strife end, she first gained national attention with her record-breaking 12-week run on Star Search in the late 80s and later snapped everybody to attention with an award-winning run as the female lead in the Broadway smash Jekyll and Hyde. And I promise you, if you ever saw her belting out the stunningly powerful lyrics of that show's signature song, Someone Like You, you never forgot it. She's still out there making terrific records and touring the world, and she's just released her 10th studio album, 11 if you count her beautiful Christmas record from nine years ago. It's a great collection of classic film tunes entitled Soundtrack. And she's come by the buzz today to talk about all of this and so much more. You know, I'd like to call myself this woman's biggest fan, but I'd wager that I've got to vanquish some pretty stiff competition in order to nab that title. She is angelic. She is amazing. She is Linda Etter. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm blown away. I'm flattered. It's well deserved. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show here. (laughs) Did you even take a breath? I don't know. (laughs) So it's such a great thrill to have you on the show. It's a great honor to speak with you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And, uh, it, you know, uh, as I said, I've been your biggest fan for about 12 years now, and it's just such a great thrill to have you here. Well, my pleasure. So let's get the let's get the boring stuff out of the way at the outset here. Give me the 60-second bio on Linda Etter. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Well, I was born in Tucson, Arizona, but I was raised my, my whole life, really, in Minnesota. Wow, so, okay. So, yeah, quite, quite extreme. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big uh, 180 there. Yeah, believe me, every winter I wish my family would have stayed in Arizona. Um, And I'm just a a high school graduate because I started singing right out of high school and never stopped. Wow. Did you always know you wanted to be a singer? I mean, was this always pretty clear to you? Well, I always knew I loved singing, but I never thought I'd have the nerve. I was very shy about singing, and it took an awful lot for me to get those first few notes up just to get into the high school choir. But I had a really good choir teacher that encouraged me in the right way and helped me get over the nerves to start singing in front of people. And once you do that, you know, if you've got it in you and you love it, you know, there's no going back. 
Do you remember the first time that you, that you really got a like a big reaction to your voice? I mean, do you do you remember the first time people were you know kind of agog at something that you sang or something that you you had done? Boy, that's a good question. I I don't know that I could pinpoint one that, thing that was an actual performance. Probably a, a high school solo, and you know when you picked to do the solo in the choir concert. Sure. I would say that. Oh no, actually further back than that in junior high, I, I was. Um, uh, you know, I did a, a little bit of theater, but I think high school generally. But to be, to, to, the thing that really struck my mind when you said that was that was all the way back to when I was a five-year-old and we were in Austria visiting my Austrian relatives and with my grandmother who didn't speak any English, but my sister and I were with her. I guess she was putting us to bed that night and, and I was singing and I remember singing and I remember <laughs> getting her reaction and, and that probably would be the first moment. Wow. Did, you talk about being in Austria at age five. Did you travel the world from an early age? I mean, was that was that well, something that only only because my family is not from America. My mother's from Norway, and my dad is from Austria. So, you know, they were bringing us over there, which sure. is great. You know, it broadens your horizon. Sure, right still. I mean, it's a, it's a great experience. Even if you didn't, you know, hopscotch the world, it's still a great experience to to see yeah. something other than where you're from and where you live. Right. Did you grow up in a in a very musical household? Was there always kind of music playing? Uh, yeah, my my mom likes music, my dad likes music, so uh, the, and it was a real eclectic mix of things that we listened to. Such as? Oh, everything from, you know, Ray Price to the Mariachi band music, you know, <laughs> <laughs> from classical to, to polka, you know, everything. And uh, how about the pop music of the day, like James Taylor or Joni Mitchell? Or, no, you know? that's the one thing, they didn't really listen to any of that. Wow. So that's, that's what pushed me toward a toward doing Broadway and standards, you know, exactly. at, at a young age, because I was so exposed to that, you know, that stuff as a kid, and, and for some reason was I gravitated toward that, and I really got into pop music later in life. Wow. When did you first realize what it really means to have a voice as powerful as the one you possess? You mean physically or emotionally? Uh, take your pick. Both. Uh, well, physically... It feels good, you know, when when your voice is in good shape and you're belting like that. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a physical release and pleasure um, that I that if I go too long without singing, I I I can feel that build up in me, like I really want to sing again. And I I tell people who don't sing, you know, even if you don't have a good voice, just do it anyway. Amen. You'll feel better. And as far as emotionally, I guess the emotional impact was is when you get letters from people who tell you what it did to them in their life, how it, you know, how literally some people were prevented from committing suicide because of a certain song. I mean, that kind of that kind of stuff is very heavy and kind of blows you away. Wow. Can, do you remember at what age you first kind of understood the gift? I mean, was it was it pretty early on, or was it kind of later in life after you had achieved some success that you really understood? Well, I'm not. I'm my own worst critic, so I guess I don't look at myself that way. I, you know, I, I I only hear what I want it to be, not what it is. In uh, in preparation of this and speaking with you, I uh, I read about how you started out kind of in clubs when when you were first. I guess when you first came out of high school and and you first decided to kind of pursue this as a career path. Was that was that a fun time for you? Yeah, I mean, it was a learning experience. It was my version of college. I never went to college. Sure. Um, you know that was that was my life, and I learned out I learned how to become an entertainer in those first years. You know, you know I've seen and read several interviews with with uh, many famous musicians and artists who have said that, you know, some of their favorite times when they were when they were first starting out, or even after they had achieved, 
you know, a massive global success. Some of their favorite times were, you know, starting out working the clubs and kind of really crawling into the soul of a song that they were singing at the time, you know, really exploring how to use their voice and how to sing each word and, and figuring out what works and what doesn't. Um, yeah, no, no question. I, I'm just wondering if you found that to be true as well or if you were always kind of hunting bigger game. Well, I guess I I was just trying to learn how to be an entertainer. When it came to singing songs, I I I guess I just learned on the job. I didn't I don't I've never dissected material the way some people do. I, I didn't I don't approach it as a learned craft. I just sort of sang whatever and, and whatever I was feeling was always natural to me. And and for the good and for the bad, I suppose there are times when you're successful that way, and times maybe when you, when it could have been better if I would have done that approach. But that's just the way I do it. Sure. I mean, I when I hear a song, it's like I sort of instinctively know how how I'm going to do it right off the bat, and I don't analyze it. Um, that's why you know certain songs work well for for me. Absolutely. Because and I guess I guess because I'm picking them for that very reason, yeah. I, I I've come to know instinctually what songs will work. You know, I've been I've been writing a novel for a hundred years now, and the protagonist is a is a piano player in a in a small club in Florida, and you know he just he he, he loves that gig, and you know I don't know if you watch American Idol or not, but last season they had a guy Matt Gerard, and he yeah. started out as a as a piano man in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and you know you could just tell just by watching him play that piano how much he loved it, and you know it just it, it makes me wonder sometimes you know all the hoopla, all the huge theaters and accolades and all the stuff that comes along with being famous and being a performer on a grand scale that's all nice, but and it's certainly nothing to scoff at, but you know, at its essence, if you're a true lover of song and of music, uh, I would think that you can you can have just as satisfactory an experience performing and and you know sharing a moment with just two people or ten people or a hundred people. Is, is that yeah. fair or no? Yeah, I think it's definitely fair, but I think there there is something to strength in numbers when it comes to an audience because they create an energy, you know, that's very palpable, and that's what we're living off of. That's the adrenaline rush. It's when you feel that energy in a room, and you know there's 1,500 people, and yet you can hear a pin drop. That's a lot of energy in a room. And I sort of equate it to like the balloon. You don't want to let the pressure out. You sure. know, that's when you know the show's going well. Is the balloon is is at full pressure, and you know anytime there's a mistake or something goes on too long, some some mistakes you can make work for you, but you know if certain things go awry or whatever something happens and, and I can feel that pressure being let out of the balloon you know wow. that's just something that comes from having been on the stage forever but that uh, that audience energy is is food you know for people who sure. are artists when did you first get an inkling that that you could actually sustain your immense talent as a viable career path I mean did you just kind of stumble into it and one step led to another or did you ever have a moment of you know I can really do this well, I wasn't going to do it professionally. I thought, you know, I, I was going to be an artist because I paint and draw, and I'm very good at that. So I thought that was going to be my path. And then, you know, I, before I was out of high school, we were asked to play in a, some club, and we got paid, you know. This guy that played keyboards and I, we formed this duo, and, and we, before we knew it, we got one job after the other. And and suddenly, you know, this little hobby that my parents thought would maybe go away became a full-blown career. <laughs> You know, I, I've heard you say in, in past exchanges that, that Judy Garland was your biggest influence, and I, I'm wondering what it was about her that made her the one for you. Well, I, I think it probably would be a tie between her and her and Barbara. They're the sure. two that sort of created the early style that I was. You know, I've adapted and I've changed and grown, and I'm far much farther away from that and more myself these days, but they definitely were. Um, Garland, because she just is a, you know, raw kind of, 
give you everything I got kind of performer. Mm-hmm. You know, Streisand is much more calculated, as brilliant, but in a more calculated sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I feel like I I use them as my teachers. You know, to take what I saw of the best of both. You know. Years later, was it a great thrill to be able to put together an entire album of of classic Garland material? Oh yeah, yeah. If I was going to do a tribute to anybody, that would be the the right person, I guess. So it was fun. It was great to sing those arrangements. You know, so sure. many of them we kept true to what she did because I loved them so much that I wanted to sing them. <laughs> Were you terrified of not being able to do it justice, or or did you know that you could nail it? I, no, I wasn't scared. I mean, everyone always asks me that. And, you know, and I, you're going to take flack any time you try to of course. recreate an icon's work. Of course. I didn't care. You know, I really just didn't care at all because I know that I know how to do it, and I know that I did it with nothing but utmost respect. So. Wow. So would you call Star Search your big break, or was there was there something kind of before that that, that set you on your path? No, I think that was my first national exposure, so definitely, you know, any time you're going to get 24 weeks of national television in a single year, that's huge. (laughs) And it's so hilarious to think of that little syndicated television show and all the careers that that thing was instrumental in launching. I mean, when you look at people like Rosie O'Donnell and and, uh, Alanis Morissette and Drew Carey, Leanne Rimes, you... Uh, Justin Timberlake, I mean, it's incredible to think of all the talent that that little show introduced to the world. Yeah. Well, anytime you get in front of an audience, you know, it's really about that. That's that's the biggest problem facing anyone who wants to get in the business. How do I get in front of an audience? Yeah. Get your foot in the door. Yep. Yeah. You know, I read in preparation of speaking with you that your goal was just to win one episode of that show, and you ended up winning the whole damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Totally true. You know. <laughs> you have no concept of will anybody like you, you know, because I don't have that kind of natural confidence that a lot of performers have. They uh-huh. walk out there with a, you're going to love me attitude, and I, I've never had that. Mine has always been, you know, is this okay? You know? <laughs> so so I was, a, you know, it was an amazing experience for me. Was your family just, just utterly thrilled to be able to see you on national television every week? Oh, yeah. Wow. You know, they they worry about you when you go in this kind of business, you know, um, because it is a hard business and most people don't make it. So sure. it's fraught with worry for a parent. So to uh, to see me succeed and, and not have to go through the pain of losing, you know, I think that was hard for them. You know, my dad would have been so crushed for me if I had lost both parents. You know, your family doesn't want to see you go through what they perceive as being a painful experience. So I fortunately never lost. So I, I and believe me, I, I Starfish was bad enough, and they couldn't even talk to you. I watched a lot of people that I got to know lose, and I can't even begin to imagine what they go through in American Idol. <laughs> oh, my, uh, no kidding. I mean, and, you know, Star Search was watched by, I don't know how many people watched, but it must have been, you know, just maybe a, a few million at most. And, yeah. y- you know, you look at something like American Idol with 40 million people and, and yeah. you know, at least that many worldwide. I mean, it's incredible to, to think of the pressure. Yeah. Yep. So how did how did uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde come into your life? Well, actually, I met Frank because of Star Search. Uh, there was somebody that worked on the show that knew him, and, and I sent him my demo, and we started working on a recording deal. And then he told me about the show that he was working on and asked if I was interested in doing theater. And, of course, I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. You know, <laughs> and then they started writing the part, you know, for me. Uh-huh. Did you have the foggiest clue at the time how massively and irrevocably that show would end up changing your life? No. <laughs> I mean, could uh, could you have dared to dream it? No, no, I don't. I don't even think, you know, you don't think about that. It's sort of one step at a time. For, it was for so long, it was just a struggle to get it to Broadway. But, uh-huh. You know, any Broadway show is amazingly tough to get there. And 
so that we were just always consumed by the challenge of trying to get it there. So you're not even really thinking beyond it at that point. Wow. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Talk about the talk about the journey from from you know the the the, the local tour to the national tour to Broadway. Talk about the the experience. Well, the first experience was down in Houston, and that was uh, something that'll never be recreated. I mean, that was the magical kind of Camelot moment when we did that down in Houston. We we were the toast of the town. We could do no wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, the reviews were glowing. And uh-huh. We had so much fun. The cast was amazing. And, you know, the show was done the way it was meant to be done. And then it, it didn't move forward from that point. The producers started fighting with each other and then suing each other. and then it, So it sat for a while, and in the process it went through different directors and different workshops and different albums and you know it finally did make it to Broadway but it in it in the production was a great production but in my mind it, it should have been that 1990 production yeah. from that reality with that with that director and that cast done and it's it's the way that it was meant to be done with mm-hmm. you know tongue in cheek not totally a serious you know it was never meant to be taken seriously so seriously <laughs> so but you know it all worked out how massively different was the Broadway version from the original version? I mean, are we talking about different songs or different? Yes, I mean, yes there were some different songs. In fact, my very first song that is "Bring On the Men." You know, that's what my entrance was down in Houston, and it was it was the most amazing way to introduce a character with that song. And the Broadway director, he wanted a different song. You know, they always want to put their own stamp on I'm it. Sure. And yeah. I didn't know how to be a diva, so I didn't say. <laughs> my foot down and say, absolutely not, you're not taking this song away from me. Uh-huh. I replaced it with a song called Good and Evil, which wasn't anywhere near as good. You know, and I, and I wouldn't let that happen nowadays. I would fight tooth and nail when your gut tells you. But back then, I didn't know <laughs> that I could fight. You know, so I, I let them take it away from me, and wow. that was a shame. Because wow. it's back in the show. It's back in every other production that's ever done of the show around okay. the world. It never should have been taken out. So some songs, a couple of things, but majority of music remained the same but it was just it was just made so serious you know uh-huh. take itself seriously which you know it was not, it was written to be a little bit mellow, uh, larger than life and campy you know sure not not so serious so and that i think was a was a was a mistake but it still it was strong enough that it, it still lasted and it would still be running if they hadn't cast a certain guy <laughs> <laughs> who will remain nameless who shall <laughs> You know, don't don't you think that the perception is that that everything that makes it to Broadway has to have a little bit of gravity to it? No, not at all. It has to be entertaining. That's it. It has to be, touch you emotionally, and you know, it did. It, it had its moments. I mean, I was murdered in it. It was it was dramatic as could be. It's just where it was allowed to be a little campy. It was allowed to be. You know, it's larger than life. That's what it is. So, and it's whatever it is. It just has to be true to itself, and it has to be true to to the way that it was written. And it's when but the problem is you get all these different chefs stirring the pot, and they start to splinter it a little uh-huh. bit. It, it loses its its path a little bit. Once you got a taste of the of the kind of theatrical experience, the the experience of you know being on stage every night and working with these great actors, was was Broadway always the ultimate dream for you after that, or? No, Carnegie Hall was always my ultimate goal. You know, as a kid growing up in Minnesota, it was the only venue I knew of that was famous. So that was my one big goal, and it was where Judy did her big. My favorite album of hers is the Carnegie Hall album, and sure. that place was magical to me. So it, it's amazing that you know I've played there so many times now, and I've, I've achieved a goal that I had as a child. That that was a, a huge thing for me, and, it, and it's a magical room. I've had the most amazing concerts there with the energy just going through the roof, and amazing audiences that just you know blew me away. Wow! How many times have you been there? Four or 
five. God, I can't even think at the moment. Actually, I think it's five. Wow. Yeah. Do you ever want to do a live Carnegie album? Yeah, well, I'd like to do a live album. I don't know if I would do it at Carnegie Hall or not, um, but uh, some venue that would lend itself well to, to a live thing would be great. You know, I, I know that I'm a, I'm better live than anywhere, so uh, I think that I think that'd be fun. You know, I think the, I think the fans would like it. They've asked for that yeah, for years. You know, it, yeah. it's shocking to you know thinking back on your discography, it's shocking to think that you don't have one. Yeah, I mean, I know. you you have you have some cast albums, and that's that's a different well, thing. I but. have DVDs. I have two DVDs of live concerts, but I don't have just the CD of a live concert. So, in the wake of Jekyll, your recording career really took off. I mean, you had recorded some albums prior to that, but you know that was kind of the, at least to my eye, that was kind of the inciting moment that really kind of uh, sent you to the next level. And yeah. well, I had re- I had recorded my first solo album before that, but the you know the It's Time album was the album that, the second album that came out, right? You know. When I did Jekyll, so it was a it was a one-two punch that was mm-hmm. pretty powerful. That period in the late '90s was that a pretty heady, exhilarating time for you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I was on TV a lot. I was getting a lot of support from you know Rosie and Kathy Lee and Letterman, and um, so it was you know that's a invaluable. But they they came to see me at Carnegie Hall, and then and I was on their show several times, and that kind of it always comes down to that national exposure. You know? Absolutely. You know, that's where I first saw you on Regis and Kathy Lee singing Someone Like You in the right. summer of 97, and I thought it was one of the most achingly gorgeous love songs I've ever heard. Oh, you know, you you uh, you really excel at those bittersweet tunes that, depending on where the listener is coming from, can either be viewed as happy, thrilling songs or incredibly sad songs. I mean, you know, if you look at things like Vienna or... Or someone like you, or my favorite song of yours, which is uh, a great song you did in 2002 called "Until I Don't Love You Anymore." Uh, are you are you just kind of naturally drawn to material like that when you're searching for songs? Uh, yeah, I think it, it. I tend to do sad songs well, and either I I can do the sad ones really well, and I can also do the balls to the walls, up tempo kind of swing. <laughs> Big numbers. <laughs> my voice is sort of like a horn, a horn instrument. I wouldn't call it a string instrument. It's a horn instrument. So, um, depending on how you play it, I mean, you can play a pretty wide range. But yeah, definitely, there's a sad quality to my voice, which is just innate. Yes. So it lends itself to that. No question. You know, I mean, very few songs can can kind of be all things to all people. But you know, I would think that if you can find material that appeals to and touches the listener, no matter where in the emotional spectrum he or she happens to be standing at the time, that seems like money in the bank to me. Right, right. It's all, yeah, it definitely comes down to the emotional impact, which is why you cannot ever debate art. You know, there's no right, there's no wrong. People like what they like, and it's about where it hits them. And you cannot tell someone that they're wrong because they're getting an emotional reaction. Absolutely. In the wake of of, uh, Celine Dion's explosive rise to international prominence, which happened right around the same time that you were first kind of generating some heat in the business. It seemed as though your record company, Atlantic, really wanted to mold you into a star in that similar kind of vein. And, you know, it seemed, at least from the outside to me, that you always kind of buckled against that a little bit, like like that was a slipper that never quite fit you. Is that is that fair? No, I think it's more that, you know, I was married to a songwriter, and in a rather passive-aggressive way. He certainly didn't do it because he thought it would hurt me in any way. He wanted me singing his material. 
And I did, and I, I sang some of the best songs I've ever sung have been his, but also I've sung a lot of material that was just good. It wasn't great. Mm -hmm. But I was doing it because we were a couple, and, you know, that's what you do. And um, So I, it was much more that. It was, it was the fact that it was he and I working on a lot together, and that was sort of guiding me in a way, and not letting another manager come in and say, listen, if you do this, Linda, on your own or go this way, you know, it would really have a great impact. So... It's not. It's not that I consciously chose not to do a certain thing. It's just that. It's just the way it worked out. Gotcha. That that kind of resistance and that kind of, I don't know that that kind of symbiotic relationship that that you two shared at the time. Did that ever create problems or tensions for you, in terms of your career path, or in any other not way? Not that I was aware of really so much of the time. More so after we we kind of went our separate ways, I realized that if I just would have. Listen to a particular. I went through different managers because they because they could not they could not overcome Frank's influence. And if I just would have listened to a few of them, and even if it wasn't what Frank wanted, and and, and gone with them, it, you know, who knows, you know, where it would have gone, what my life would have been. But you know, I don't regret it. I, I'm I like the path that I that I was on for the most part, and you know, and I have all the freedom I want now. I'm, that's why I'm doing such a wide variety of things now, because I have the freedom to do it. Absolutely. You, know? you touched on this a while ago a little bit, and, and I want to get back to that further in depth. Talk to me about the recording process and about the making of records. You have made some extraordinary records in the past two decades, but I've seen you live, and you are just extraordinary on a stage with live musicians right there and, you know, an audience showing you such love. And I sometimes feel that and you touched on this a while ago, what you do on stage doesn't always translate in full in the studio, and I'm wondering if you feel that way as well. Oh, no, I agree, especially a certain type of music. I mean, the, the very theatrical, like I, I say it a lot, but it's really true, it's a little bit larger than life, over, you know, more more dramatic stuff is just better live because it can be too big on record. It's just it doesn't translate well. So certain, it really depends on the kind of music that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for most people. I think that's why, you know, pop music is what it is. It's created to be able to be listened to in a car when you're driving down yep. the road at, at mid-volume or low-volume or yep. loud-volume. That, And, you know, a lot of theatrical music, you just really can't. It doesn't. It's not the same on your ear. It's mm -hmm. not relaxing. It's not all that. So uh, it, it just depends. But that's why I think I'm actually making better records now than I made in some regards years ago because I'm I'm concentrating on a different type of music wow. for that. It's specifically, you know, tailored very much to that. Not that it can't be done live, it, it's sure. live as well. But it's more musical in a sense and, you know, not as dramatic. You know, I think I think that happens with, with a lot of singers. I mean if you look at somebody like uh I, I don't know, Patty LaBelle and, you know, good God, you can't name five singers that are better than Patty LaBelle. And mm -hmm. even today, that woman hits that stage and puts on one hell of a dynamite show. But, right. you know, she and she's one of those artists who seems to kind of channel the energy of the audience and of the stage and of what's going on around her, and she uses that energy to take her artistry to the next level. And, you know, not to knock what she's done on record, she's made some phenomenal records, but I just think that sometimes she gets a little too harnessed, uh, a little too tightly in the studio sometimes, and, and sometimes I feel that way about you as well. Well, yeah, because you know a lot of things that people are responding to is when you're you're belting full out, and that cannot sometimes be captured on the microphone. Mm -hmm. It it takes it and the electronics turn it into something different that is kind of too hard to capture and harness, and that's it's not pleasant on the ear. But live, it's thrilling, it, yeah, thrilling yeah. thing, and you're you're 
you know, they haven't caught up with electronics to be able to record a really loud belt, I don't think. You know, you've become known over the years as someone who is not afraid to record some pretty chancy, pretty risky covers. I mean, you've done Son of a Preacher Man, and you've done uh, Dobie Gray's Drift Away, and you've done several Strifan things, and you've done Here Comes the Sun and Both Sides Now. Are, are there songs that are absolutely sacrosanct for you? No. <laughs> I pretty much just do whatever, like, you know, um, the one song that I, the only one I didn't attempt for a long time because I just knew I would get flack for it was Don't Run In My Parade. Sure. And then we made the Broadway record, and I just said, oh, what the heck, I'll just do it. <laughs> The fans wanted it, so I just did it. I mean, you know, we music fans, we all have our songs that we think, I don't want to hear another living soul sing that song. And I always wonder if, if singers feel that way. I mean, even if, even singers who are as, as smashingly great as you are, I, you know, I always wonder if, if some singers have that list of songs that they just think, there's no way I would ever touch this. Yes, absolutely. I, I think... When you hear a version that you think is a definitive version, you don't you and you don't hear right away a way that you could do it that would add anything. That's what would keep me away from it. Well, it goes back to that thing of instinctually knowing what's right for you and what isn't right. Sure. You know, I, I asked you that question because on your new album soundtrack, which is a, a gorgeous collection of classic movie tunes, you cover a spectacular song called "Falling Slowly" from the film Once. And, you know, I don't want to oversell it here. It's not as though that movie and that soundtrack were huge blockbuster hits. But, you know, the people who love that film and love its music, uh, and I'll tell you right now, I'm one of them. I thought that movie was utterly extraordinary. Uh, but the people who love it really love it. And, you know, when I saw the track list for soundtrack and saw Falling Slowly on it, my instant reaction was, oh, I don't know if that's such a good idea or not. Did, did you have any, I mean, you know, to your credit, you do a phenomenal job with your version of it. And I'm just wondering if you had any apprehension whatsoever about taking on something that is so extraordinarily beloved. Well, at first of all, I didn't know that it was extraordinarily beloved, so <laughs> I didn't even see the film. I have it now. Someone gave it to me on DVD, so I'm going to watch it. I haven't seen the film. I just it is saw phenomenal. The song, and I saw the song being sung in the Academy Awards, and I loved it. So when we decided, that's kind of the reason I picked the theme, the theme of movies, because I knew I wanted to sing that song. Just that simple. Yep. You know, the movie is so great, and, and, you know, I mean, it's not, there's not really much of a story. It's, it's almost a complete character piece. I mean, there's not, there's not, there's a very thin story, and it's tied together mainly by the music, and it's just a wrenching, phenomenal film. And no one would ever accuse Glenn Hansard of having a pretty voice, but, you know, in much the same way that, that someone... Oh, I love his voice. No, I love his voice. I like that kind of voice. Sure. But, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not what you think of when you think of a, like a crystal clear, pretty voice. Right, but uh, that's not what I, I don't really necessarily gravitate toward that in a guy anyway. I like kind of I like a bit of rasp. I like country pop. I'm a huge country pop fan. I, but I like that sort of uh, sexy raspy guy voice. You know. Absolutely. You know, in much the same way that that someone like Bob Dylan can be profoundly affecting with a great lyric, I think that the gut wrenching emotion that that Glenn and Marketa bring both to that song and to all the music from that film, uh, you know, renders it deeply intimate and and pretty sacred. Do you have a favorite track on this record? I mean, I, I love the, the playful take you did on, on Accidentally in Love. and, and Yeah, that one's gotten a lot of attention, and, and it's funny because I could hear myself singing it that way right away, and, I, you know, it just was so fun and easy. Like most of the songs on record, are, are, I loved singing them all. Uh, so that one's gotten a lot of attention. As far as my favorite, boy, I, I, it's really hard to say. I, I was surprised by some, because some of them are my choices, some of them are the label's choices, and some of them were songs that were suggested by the producer. So 
for instance, I Can't Help Falling in Love, the Elvis song, mm-hmm. it was the record label's idea to have me do one Elvis song, and in my gut reaction, inside was, oh, God, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> so I, but I bowed down to them and, you know, was happy to do it and picked that song and was blown away by really what a little gem that song is. It's kind of like an over the rainbow to me now feeling to it. It's such a you know, it's really a perfect little song. Uh-huh. So I really am happy with the way that one came out emotionally. I love the song Falling Slowly. I And I love everything I do. It's always been a huge sure. favorite song of mine. You know, it was so overdone, overplayed, overplayed. and But I love it so much. Um, and, I, and I like the arrangement that it came up. I also love Help. I think and that was our, our producer's idea to do it. And, you know, it was originally written as a ballad. So... Um, I think the arrangement that he suggested that idea was great. You know. Wow, absolutely. You know, I I, I love your your stripped down take on Against All Odds, and yeah, I love I like the the mellow take on If I Can't Have You. I mean, yeah, right. that you one, know, that one came out really well. You know, I love how you're not afraid to to really kind of bend these songs inside out and and find your own groove with them. Right. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the key when you're going to take a cover song like that. You have to try to do something with it. How much? I mean, I know you work with producers and arrangers, but how much input do you have in terms of, in terms of making these these radically different cover songs? I mean, how much how much input do you have in terms of you know rearranging these songs and and turning them inside out and finding your own way with them? Huge. I mean, I produced my last record, and I I, I pretty much we basically co-produced it. Even though I'm not listed as producer on there, they they I told them I don't I want a producer that will work with me because I I do know what works for me now. You know, so the falling slowly is mine. Everybody's talking to me is mine. Accidentally love is mine. You know, um, everything I do, we, you know, we worked up before we even met the producer. So, um, a lot, a lot of it there is mine. And, and also, uh, my um, great guy that I work with, Billy Stein, who's my musical director. You know, the two of us are a really good team. We co-produced the last record together. So, a lot of it comes from us. Wow. You know, I've talked on and on about my favorite Linda Edder tracks. Do you have one or two that, from across your immense career that kind of stand out for you? You know, it's, it's always a tough question to ask because I have to perform them all the time. Sure. So it's very hard. But I think one of the songs that I think is, is an amazing song that never got the kind of attention that I wished it would have is, gosh, I'm blanking on the title now. I can't believe I'm just totally blanking <laughs> on the title. It's the one about the 9-11 song. Oh, uh, If I Had My Way? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes, yes. I, I don't know why it wasn't picked up because, it, you know, on something, used for something with 9-11 and with the country because I just think Jack wrote the most gorgeous lyric for that, you know, and it gets me every time. And uh, I think it fits so beautifully with the melody and, you know, so I would, uh, that's one of my favorites. You know, another song of yours that that ever, that a lot of people loved, and, and it got a dance remix, and everything was something to believe in. I mean, what another yeah. great, inspiring lyric. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's one we do quite often. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I, I can imagine that you can't hardly dare to do a show without doing someone like you or something to believe in or Vienna or you know some yeah. of your really classic <laughs> tunes. Yeah, I hear about it if I don't do it. <laughs> Stepping outside the subject, the holidays are coming up directly, and I have to tell you that one of my favorite songs ever, one of my favorite Christmas songs ever, is your version of Do You Hear What I Hear, which is just, it's it's just glorious, transcendent grace. Well, thank you. That was a Chris Asian, he's a friend of my, my good friend Gail, her husband Chris is an arranger, and he, he came up with that arrangement, and he did a, just an amazing job. Unbelievable. What was, what was the choir that you worked with on that? That was the Broadway 
choir. It was uh, a choir put together by a guy named Dave Clemens, who was in the original production of Jekyll and Hyde, and you know he, he did some other stuff with us through the years, and then he became a casting agent in Manhattan, and he's a great singer in his own right, and he put together this choir with a lot of Broadway people, all Broadway people, it was a Broadway, you know, Broadway choir, so... Fantastic. Um, yeah, that was fun. Were you actually with them in the studio, or did you record your part separately? No, I was there, yeah. Oh, that must have been just something. Yeah, I, I did my lead separately, but I sang a guide vocal for when they were, I, I don't know, I can't remember if my vocal had already been recorded, and then they sang to that, but, you know, I was definitely there, because I, you know, I, I co-produced all the records before that, you mm-hmm. know, Frank and I were doing them together, so mm-hmm. I was very involved with what was going on. So what's on the horizon for Linda Etter? I, I assume you're going to tour behind soundtrack. Well, I tour in the sense that I'm always touring. You know, I work all year long doing a certain number of dates per month um, Try just to try to be have a normal life, you know, to try to be home for my son. I have a 10-year-old son, so <laughs> just try to balance it all out, you know. Wow. So, uh, I mean, what's coming down the pike for you? Are you are you itching well, to make another record already, or are you going to let this well, one breathe for a little bit? or? Yeah, well, well, yeah, we'll definitely let this one go for a little while. But I'm one of the things that I've loved that's come back to my life because of the other side of me record is that I I'm writing again. I because that's the reason I was happy to make that record because I when I write, what I write is country pop, and I have a bit of a talent for it. So I'm playing my guitar again and I'm writing. And in fact, the song on the other side of me that gets the most attention is the one I wrote. And I I've written others since then and now got a publishing deal as a result. So that's something that I'm really having fun focusing on writing because I've always liked to write and I just w- didn't have the outlet for it really but now now I have a band that can actually play my stuff and I can actually uh, you know I do two of my own songs in the show Fantastic. and I have a Christmas song that we add during the Christmas time so um, that's the, an exciting kind of creative outlet for me. Fantastic. You know when you say country pop who, who do you look to in that genre that I mean who, who do you look to as, as an admirer? Well, you know, for years that's what I've been listening to. I've loved, you know, Fate Hill, Martina McBride, all, all the people I like. The newer, of course, I like Carrie Underwood. But my favorite group right now is Lady Antebellum. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I love their record. Their, their last record, I love every single song on it. In fact, I do one of their songs in the show. And um, they have a great song also, called "I Look to You," which I think is just one of the extraordinary oh. singles of the year. Yeah, I know. It became a number yeah. one hit. And, and uh, the song "One Day You Will," I love so much. I do that on my show. And I also like Rascal Flatts. I mean, I really like country pop. You know, that's really that blend, uh, very fine line. It sounds country only because the people singing have slightly country interpretations, but it's sort of pop music, you know. <laughs> how about how about the people who really kick that off? People like Crystal Gale and Juice Newton. Do you do you ever go back and listen to some of that, or, or not really? Not nowadays. I mean, I listen to it, you know, in the heyday of it all. Sure. I, I certainly enjoyed it, but no, I, I'm more into the newer gotcha. newer stuff. I love the Five for Fighting, you know, John Andrasic. I love that kind of music. You know he is amazing. He's he's a one man band. I mean it's it's incredible what he does. I know, so talented. He's such a great poet. Well, I tell you what, I have had such a thrill having you on the show today, and I, I, as I said, I've been a big fan for a long time, and I really appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time and talking about some of this great career stuff that I've admired for so long. No, you're welcome. I've had a good time talking to you. I tell you, I want you to know that you're welcome here anytime. You have a permanent and standing form here at Brandon's Buzz. All right, sounds good. (laughs) Hey, before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? Sure. As long as it includes the words Linda Etter and Brandon's Buzz, anything else you say is totally up to you. Hi, this is Linda Etter. If you want to have a good time, if you want to get a buzz, then you better listen to Brandon's Buzz because here's a guy that knows where it's at. He knows music, he knows how to talk about it, and he knows where to send you to hear good music. I had a ball with him, and you will too. 
make sure to catch up. Brandon's Buzz. Fantastic. Thank you so, so, so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. The spectacular Linda Etter, everybody. Brandon's Buzz in the can for Tuesday, October 27th, 2009. Uh, I want to tell you quickly, in case you don't know how to find the show, Mission Control for Brandon's Buzz is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. From there, you can listen to the show. You can download old shows. You can leave comments. You can send me emails. You can tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. That's kind of the that's kind of home base for Brandon's Buzz. It's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Uh, you can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There's a full radio archive at the top of the page. Just click on the blue button that says radio. Uh, that will take you to a page that has all my guests listed, and you can click on each guest's name, and that will take you to a page where you can see the great banners that my pal Joanne makes to help me advertise the show, and you can listen to the corresponding show on the playable widget that rests right above that banner. So that's at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. I'm also on iTunes. I'm on iTunes right next to Linda Etter. Just type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. Uh, from there, you can, you can uh, download individual old shows as podcasts and play them on the device of your choosing. Or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the Music Store. So I'm all over the Internet. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. There's no excuse not to be able to find me, uh, and I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue listening to me and continue finding Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.